Loss of freedom is the punishment for the more than 30,000 inmates in the state's prison system. But with the global pandemic, is it a death sentence for some at risk for the virus in North Carolina? I'm Stephanie Carson, host of The Kicker by Carolina Public Press. On this week's show, we talk about the spread of the virus in the state's prison system and into communities through prison employees and contractors. Jordan Wilkie is with Carolina Public Press. He's a Report for America Corps member. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And you've been following this issue with prisons and and COVID since the beginning. Um, Where do we stand now in terms of your most recent reporting? Well, the situation is in some ways very similar to what it was at the very beginning. We have a lot of cases and a lot of outbreaks as one outbreak at a prison, one prison winds down, uh, another appears at another prison. Uh, The state has a lot more Uh, testing protocols and is more prepared to uh, quarantine folks uh, and and seems to have a much more consistent response when a COVID case is identified. Uh, But we are still seeing uh, quite a number of cases and hospitalizations um, in a pretty consistent rate uh, ever since, you know, the the prison system really started testing folks and being aware of how significant the problem was back in March. And I read your most recent reporting that's on our website now, and it's it's significant to me as you consider, you know, what solution is there to this? You know, by nature, prisons are congregate facilities. By nature, they're together. Um, and then you, you know, on top of that, you know, the answer is to quarantine them. Well, then that's isolation, which is in and of itself a punishment. So there's some really tough tough issues that the solutions are not necessarily obvious for. Right. Well, the there are a number of recommendations that have come out of the um, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, as well as a number of other groups that specialize in uh, health care, medical care in prisons and jails. And the Department of Public Safety, in part of its own volition and in large part from uh, pressure from the courts, um, because they're being sued over conditions during the pandemic, have made a pretty significant effort to follow those recommendations, barring one, and that is to release a lot of people to decrease the concentration of people in the prisons. The state has said in court cases that it's releasing more people than it normally does, uh, and that is true on average. In 2020, um, since March, the state has released about 2,000 people per month, uh, and that is uh, on average about 400 people more per month than was happening in 2019. Um, And so the prison system has decreased in population by about 3,000 people over the last nine months. And that, you know, um, uh, fluctuates very regularly for a number of reasons. Um, they're also reducing the population through a program called extend, extended limits of confinement, where people are still technically serving their prison sentence, but they're um, at home. And uh, the plaintiffs in the case are saying, well, you know, it's nice that you're letting slightly more people out, but it's actually not enough to significantly decrease the prison population to a degree where the transmission of a virus um, is you know, diminished at all, uh, where, you know, you have dorms of people who are sleeping within uh, arm's length of each other, uh, who are eating, who, you know, you have 30 people using the same bathroom. uh, And the plaintiffs in the case say, um, basically, you need to reduce a population uh, to, you know, maybe 85% per one recommendation, um, or down to 50% 
for others so that you actually have social distancing inside. Um, and and there's not been an effort anywhere near uh, that level um, by the courts or by the department's um, own actions. Uh, and, you know, as long as there are a lot of people in prison, if a virus gets inside, it's going to be transmitted fairly easily. And we've just seen that happen again and again since March. And you spoke with a few inmates in your most recent pieces. What was that like to hear about how things are playing out for them on the inside? In some ways, it's um, good to hear that the prison system is responding uh, more swiftly and more consistently than they were um, even into the summer. Um, In other ways, there's, you know, one problem that remains consistent, and it's that uh, there's a lack of information being shared uh, and a lack of um, sort of description of the logic being shared by the prison uh, to the people who are incarcerated. Um, People are calling me with complaints about how long they're being quarantined, whether or not they're getting a second COVID test about having, you know, people who've been quarantined for two weeks having people who just got sick moved in, they're afraid they're going to get sick again. And there, there's just generally a, a lack of understanding about how the virus works, about how quarantine procedures work, about testing procedures. And uh, while a lot of the actions make some sense um, from the Department of Public Safety standpoint about what they're doing in the prisons, the people who are actually being affected Uh, don't understand the logic and often feel like they're being mistreated. Um, And I think a lot of that just comes from a tremendous amount of fear that they're feeling, Um, fear that the, you know, virus is going to make them very sick in a way, fear that uh, if they are being mistreated and they speak out that they'll have some form of retaliation, which we haven't shown, but there's a lot of fear um, that that could happen. Um, And yeah, so I mean, even though the prison's response has improved in many ways, um, per experts talking about the the requirement to test more and to uh, release more people, um, the prison system has fallen short. And then in terms of uh, educating people on the inside about what the prison is doing and why, um, there just seems to be a a massive information gap that that hasn't improved much um, in the last nine months. And I'm sure North Carolina is not unique, um, but do you have any perspective on how other states might be handling this in better or worse ways? Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, other states have significantly um, higher death rates, but they also have uh, different structures for their prisons, um, much higher, sometimes more vulnerable um, populations than the prisons. New Jersey is the only state where the legislators stepped in and passed new laws about decreasing the population in the prison and um, making some other responses uh, to protect people who are incarcerated from the coronavirus. Kentucky governor uh, stepped in and has pardoned over 2,000 people, um, pardoned or offered clemency uh, to over 2,000 people to get them out of prison. Uh, our governor, uh, Governor Roy Cooper, um, has pardoned five people. Um, all of whom had uh, very clear cases of uh, being wrongfully convicted. Um, And at least one of them was already out of prison. Uh, And so, you know, Governor Cooper has not used his authority of pardon or clemency to respond to the coronaviruses in the prison system um, and has stayed pretty mute about uh, what he believes the Department of Public Safety should be doing 
on its own. Courts have stepped in all across the country. There are, uh, I don't know the exact number, but there are dozens of lawsuits um, that are being tracked by a, a group at UCLA uh, and uh, state and federal courts have ordered uh, reductions in prison population at San Quentin. Uh, uh, people were transferred into the prison and the, some of those people had COVID presumably and uh, the virus spread rapidly throughout the whole prison. Um, you know, hundreds of people got sick, uh, several died, and the judge said uh, basically they need to reduce the prison population by half uh, out there. Um, and so there's a lot of this patchwork set of interventions that are happening uh, by legislatures, uh, by governors, and much um, more commonly by courts. Uh, and that's the main method of intervention that we're actually seeing in North Carolina is um, the state court case. The last question I have is, this is, you know, it's a tough discussion. It's a tough thing to consider because there are times that, you know, prisoners are not considered a sympathetic group. Um, they, you know, have been found guilty of a crime. They're they're serving time. And so it's hard for some folks in society to care enough about some of the problems you're highlighting and you're reporting. But, but from what you've learned, other than the humanity of it, um, why is it important that we have a good handle on this in our prison population? Well, there are several ways to take that. Um, there's a justice angle. Um, that angle says basically if we haven't sentenced someone to die, we should not put them in a situation in which they could die. Um, that argument's being made very strongly by the plaintiffs in the lawsuit. Um, that is also made by um, folks at the uh, Prisoner Legal Services, which is uh, a group that was created in response to a significant lawsuit uh, a little over a decade back uh, about a lack of legal representation for people who are incarcerated. Um, and so, you know, they exist in order to represent the, the plight of people who are incarcerated. Um, they're making a similar argument. People are not sentenced to die. So why are they being put in conditions where their risk of death is increased? Um, on a public health side of things, uh, prisons are, are actually quite porous, more porous than people may think. You have thousands of staff who go into prisons and come home. Uh, I mean, we've heard um, numerous anecdotal stories uh, about staff getting sick at a prison facility and then going home and their family or their spouse getting sick. Uh, we're part of the Carolina Public Press is part of the Watchdog Reporting Network. And we uh, wrote about the first staff person known to uh, have died of COVID. And she was a nurse um, at Caswell Prison. And uh, she seemingly, um, it's you know very difficult to tell exactly where someone got sick, but there were cases at the prison where she worked. Uh, she started showing symptoms while she was still working. Uh, she got tested and went home uh, and had COVID. Uh, got her husband sick with COVID and she died from it. Um, there are other anecdotal stories of, of similar things happening. Uh, and it's very difficult to tell exactly what the spread is um, from prisons into the community at large. Um, but as with uh, hepatitis, as with HIV, as with other infectious diseases, we've seen uh, over decades that prisons and jails act as reservoirs for illness and disease. And uh, that illness sort of lives in a correctional facility because just the conditions are sort of ripe for um, the spread of an infectious disease. And when people are released from prison, um, 
in this case with, with this virus, uh, when staff get ill, when contractors get ill, they can then spread it into the community at large. And we're starting to see more and more research uh, that shows there's a significant correlation between the presence of a correctional facility, um, be it a, a, a large jail or a prison, and the prevalence of um, COVID-19 cases in the surrounding county or community. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's something that people have been warning about, uh, epidemiologists and public health experts have been warning about um, even since, you know, before there were cases in the prisons in North Carolina, is that reducing the prison population and protecting the prison population uh, from COVID-19 will protect the rest of us. And um, there are some measures that have been put in place to make that happen, uh, but, you know, they still fall significantly short of the recommendations of uh, groups that specialize in, in carceral health care. This is all great information. Jordan, thanks so much for following this um, for us. And you can read Jordan's reporting at carolinapublicpress.org under our special report section, um, What Ails NC Prisons. Thanks a lot. Leah Kang is a staff attorney at the ACLU of North Carolina Legal Foundation. Leah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I know you've been following this probably longer than we have um, in terms of issues in prisons, and COVID has highlighted those issues. You know, tell me where things stand with the ACLU and your activities related to this. The ACLU, along with several partner civil rights legal organizations in North Carolina, filed suit um, back in April um, challenging the conditions of confinement during this pandemic in our state prisons. Um, we've been um, fighting in that case uh, for conditions that will keep incarcerated people alive and safe for several months now. Um, the Wake County Superior Court has entered a preliminary order um, that has ordered the state to do several things like test incarcerated people and um, keep them safe during transfers and to make sure that medical isolation isn't punitive um, and is, isn't like solitary confinement. Um, and most recently has entered an order appointing a court liaison um, to oversee the state implementation of these orders um, and to oversee the state's progress in reducing its prison population, which public health experts across the country, um, and certainly in North Carolina, have said is really the key to keeping people safe during this pandemic. And it's really concerning, you know, some of the conditions that I'm hearing about uh, from through Jordan's reporting and interviews with inmates, um, you know, they'd be alarming in a in a normal year, you put COVID into this, and it's troubling. I think that's right. You know, um, on a non-pandemic day, on a good day, um, a so-called good day, prisons are sites of public health crisis anyway. Um, you have folks who are kept closely together under conditions that are just not good for health and that are not good from a standpoint of public health and community health. Um, add on top of that, like you said, a pandemic that makes it incredibly dangerous for people to be packed closely together, incredibly dangerous for people to be sharing the same air, um, and incredibly dangerous, particularly for people who are in poor health or who have underlying health conditions. And you have a recipe for 
um, real real danger, um, life-threatening danger, and we've seen that. Um, close to 30 people have already died um, in state custody who were being held in state prisons um, because of COVID-19, at least um, that number, and thousands more have um, had the coronavirus or, or have currently the coronavirus, um, which we know, um, even if you survive it and you recover, um, we know medically that th that folks may suffer long-term um, health uh, and organ and brain and cardiac stress in their bodies, and so um, we are we are really talking about um, some really dangerous conditions for each of the individual thirty thousand um, people who are who are being held in the prisons, um, but also really dangerous conditions from a public health perspective. And, you know, there are folks that are less concerned about this population because the, the you know, the opinion is that they've committed a crime, that they're, they're being punished. Um, what is your response to that from a legal perspective? So um, this is a, a public health perspective, but, you know, um, the expert opinions, public health experts um, who have both submitted um, testimony in our case and who are just, who, who have, you know, spoken about this pandemic have been really um, clear to say prison health is public health. We are all um, connected, you know, it, it closing the, the, the prison doors and saying, you know, these are folks that we don't care about or these are folks that, you know, we shouldn't prioritize. Um, really endangers uh, the surrounding community of that prison, endangers um, families of prison staff who come in and out of the prison every day, um, endangers our, our broader state, um, because as we all know, um, any place that's a hotspot, that there are ramifications in causing um, COVID to spread, you know, all, all outside those walls. We cannot, we, there's no way to contain um, that kind of spread effectively. So I, I'd say that that as a baseline, um, and then I would I would really urge people um, to to read the good reporting um, that your outlet has done and that others have done. Um, each of these thirty thousand people um, who are being held right now in the state prison are human beings. They're someone's child, someone's brother, sister, parent. Um, not a single one of them has been sentenced by our state um, to die uh, by COVID-19. Um, in fact, quite to the contrary, our state has constitutional obligations to keep people um, that they are uh, forcing to, to remain incarcerated, to keep them alive and safe. That's an incredibly important constitutional obligation that, frankly, um, we should all be guarding um, because but for a bad day, it could be me or you or somebody we love that is in that position. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I think it is a real marker of how we are approaching this pandemic and how we understand our um, obligations and responsibilities to each other to make sure that we are doing what we can. I mean, we have we, um, you know, we we as a as a state are holding 30,000 people. Um, in these extremely dangerous conditions, closely confined, trapped together, um, incarcerated people have really so little control um, over the air that they breathe right now, over where they can move. They have nowhere to hide um, if the virus um, enters the prison that they are in and, and there is an outbreak. And so we, we should be very um, 
concerned and all be paying attention to, to what is happening inside our state prisons. Thank you so much for that perspective. I really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Dr. Talid El-Sabawi. She's Assistant Professor of Law at Elon University School of Law. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've been following this issue, as I'm sure you have, of COVID-19 and prisons. And what are some of your concerns um, with the expertise that you have? Um, well, I come at it from both a public health perspective and a legal perspective, because um, I'm an interdisciplinary scholar. And from the public health perspective, you have um, you have the risk of creating large widespread COVID outbreaks that not only are contained in a correctional facility, but are spread to the surrounding communities because there are people that work there um, and then return to the communities. Um, and so it, it is, it's a vector that can, um, it's a vector for disease spread. So that's one of the public health concerns. It can also lead to a number of long-term health effects and being in a, in a state where we're not a Medicaid expansion state. Um, you know, when people are released from the prisons, if they have had COVID, they may have long-term um, effects that will need to be addressed. And then kind of from a legal perspective, you know, there is a duty to, a, a constitutional duty to require, uh, that requires correctional facilities to provide health care for persons that are incarcerated. And so when, you know, when people in facilities like this get COVID, then there's the cost of providing treatment to people. And that cost is significantly more than preventative measures would have been. First, let's take from a public health perspective, to your point, you know, this is not a hypothetical. We're not saying, well, hypothetically, it could spread from the prisons to communities. It actually has in North Carolina. Yes, absolutely. No, it definitely has. And then to your other point, and just in terms of cost, you know, if we look at preventive measures versus caring for someone in the long term, you know, there are instances of folks getting COVID and having long-term health effects, as you mentioned. Yeah. And of course, you know, aside from the long-term health effects, even if we talk about the cost of intensive treatment, um, inpatient treatment for complications that arise from COVID or for severe COVID cases, those are are very costly, um, and they they can very easily overwhelm the healthcare systems, be they the systems of healthcare that are inside the prisons, or you know if there needs to be a transfer of an inmate to a local hospital because the facilities can't. Um, and can't care for that person, then that just overwhelms already overwhelmed hospitals in in the area. And do you have a sense of where we compare as in North Carolina to other states and how they're handling this? You know, I think that North Carolina is not the worst in the sense that we have, so there's different ways to, you know, handle this problem. So on the one hand, we have to look at how are the facilities, do they have preventative measures? Do they require people that work there to wear masks? Are they separating um, people who may uh, exhibit symptoms or who may report symptoms quickly enough? As far as North Carolina goes, North Carolina is not handling the COVID outbreak or the, the risks for COVID um, the best, but they're, they're definitely not the worst. 
um, they are, in the least, they have prioritized to some extent the prison population um, in, in receiving vaccines, and they have put in place some um, preventative measures, but we haven't, I mean, the, the key to truly controlling COVID outbreak in, in the prison system would be to decrease the number of people that are housed in, in these kind of dormitory style, roommate style um, scenarios. And, and we haven't done enough. And that's, and that's clear with the court cases that are ongoing um, that, that demonstrate that, you know, we're, we're putting people at risk, people who do not pose a threat to the community, um, people whose sentences are close to, to, to being over anyway. Uh, we're not re- releasing nearly enough persons into the community. If you could design how we're approaching this as a state, you mentioned, you know, looking at reducing the prison population. What other steps would you take just with your background in public health and law? Well, I also am a, a drug policy expert. So, you know, my the biggest the biggest measure, uh, the biggest reform would be to decriminalize uh, small amounts of possession of drugs, um, similar to what Oregon has recently done, that would account for a large percentage of the population, um, a percentage of the population that oftentimes is in need of treatment and not in need of incarceration. And we have a you know litany of evidence that shows that the treatment system addresses the problem significantly better, and so uh, that would be the the largest reform where we just stop arresting people for possession of small amounts of drugs and get them the help and the treatment that they need instead of clogging up our our prisons. That's a whole other show, isn't it? It really is. Yes, it really is. (laughs) Thank you so much for your perspective. And we're going to continue covering this as an organization. Our reporter, Jordan Wilkie, is constantly um, getting additional information as this develops. So I appreciate your time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You can read more of Jordan's reporting on this issue at our website, carolinapublicpress.org. Click on What Ails NC Prisons for the latest reporting. I'm your host, Stephanie Carson. Thanks for joining us.